Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I hope everyone is having a great and a safe day. All right. You know, here we have these 17 country listeners throughout the world. And, you know, we, the United States, we got to be an example. We're not being an example. You need to follow the CDC guidelines. Stay home as much as you can. But when you do go out, you got to wear that mask. You're going to have to wear that mask and social distance and wash your hands. Or we're going to go backwards to the total shutdown in our country. And you know what? Many times, some of the people that are taking the brunt of this are people with disabilities. So I really want you to please take that seriously. And to those of you around the world, which guess what? Our largest listening audience is China. And uh, I just want you to know we're thinking about you. We care about you. I so appreciate you that listen. And you know what? You're like missionaries on the disability world. So keep spreading the news. Keep telling people about this show so that more and more people in all of your countries can learn how important they are and that they matter and that they count and that they can work. Uh, Speaking of around the world, special shout out to Richard Roberts in Okinawa and Gang Yang in Seoul, South Korea. They work for the State Department and they are dear friends of mine that I met when I spoke in South Korea twice and in Japan, and I love them both. They're wonderful, and just so you know, they're going to be helping me get a show connected there that they're going to advertise throughout the country, so I'm really excited about that. I really am. It's just so awesome. Hi, Mark. You are the best. You have been the uh, sponsor for Four years. Can you imagine that? How awesome you are. Uh, And People's Natural Gas is a lead sponsor this year. We also have coming in right now, Wells Fargo. And we also had Employment Options, all sponsors. Is that not amazing that they are all sponsors of this show? I mean, such great companies. And Last, but certainly not least, hello, Yoshiko. A special shout out to my dear friend that I love, Yoshiko Dart. We got to be talking more about her and about her husband, the late, great Justin Dart, as we are getting ready this year to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Unbelievable. Well, We have someone I just think the world of on our show today. She is known nationally as a national disability rights advocate. Uh, I mean, she is just the most amazing person. Fire in her belly. She's got it going on. And also the vice chair of finance for the DNC Disability Council. Welcome to the show, Jannie Lair-Stein. How are you, Jannie? Hi, Joyce. Thank you so much for that lovely welcome, and I am doing great out here in California. It's just about 11 o'clock out here, and we're having a glorious day. Oh, that is wonderful. Well, we're happy to have you also having a glorious day, as we are here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, although... I'm not one for the real, real hot weather. That's why I know I can never be where our studio is in Arizona. Um, But the sun is shining. It's beautiful. And that's what matters. So, Janie, for our listeners, not not only in the United States, but around the world, when and why did you first become involved in politics? Because I know since I've known you, You have been, so I'm sure you were before I knew you, but why did you choose to do that, and when did you do that? I first became engaged in politics, actually, 
right around the time that Barack Obama became president of the United States. And it was really, I think, as big a surprise to me as to my family and my colleagues that I actually did become in, involved in the national political arena. And the reason I became involved in that arena was actually Barack Obama himself. I'm sure you remember the night of his election, the tremendous celebration that went on around the country. And when he took the stage on that very cold night in Chicago and spoke to the nation, he said that he intended his administration to provide equal opportunities for every American, regardless of race, age, gender, or disability. And so for the first time in my life, I felt like the man who had been elected president, our leader, was speaking directly to me. What I didn't understand at that time was that he was going to make good on a promise. And as you know, very shortly after that, he issued an executive order. And our dear friend and colleague, Tony Quello, sent an email around looking for educated people with disabilities to become part of the administration. And that led to my eventual appointment on the National Council on Disability and my entry into politics. Oh, well, you know what? Tony has this impact. As you know, he and I are very close and have been since the mid to late 90s when he was the chair of the President's Committee on Employment of People with Disabilities before there was an ODEP. And he, um, he was and became my mentor, my close friend and became an extremely close friend so that e- everyone that knows him knows, oh, Joyce, Joyce and Tony. And of course, like me, I should say, like him, I live with epilepsy, uh, but author of the ADA, just an awesome person. So I'm not surprised, Janie, that he reached out to you. And yes, I remember very clearly, I was at the White House when he, when President Obama signed that executive order for the hiring of 100,000 people over the next five years, uh, and it happened, because at the 2050 anniversary, we celebrated that that goal had been achieved. So, you know, we need people with disabilities involved. We need them involved. And Jenny, you yourself have a disability as you were growing up, what, what obstacles did you have to deal with? Well, I actually, even though I had a disability, it was undiagnosed until I was 26 years of age. My disability is blindness, and my blindness is caused by a retinal degenerative condition called retinitis pigmentosa, which is the leading cause of blindness, actually, in the United States and around the world. So I'm sure many of our global listeners will uh, immediately identify with that condition, it resulted in the gradual loss of my vision during my life. But when I was diagnosed at 26, I had just finished law school and passed the bar. I had just married my husband, Lenny, now my husband of almost 39 years. And I was doing my dream job as a litigator in Washington, D.C. So I had really no understanding of what was about to happen to me until one winter morning I came down with what I thought was an ordinary case of pink eye. Turned out that's what it was. But the ophthalmologist who saw me also looked at my redness and told me I would go blind perhaps within the next six months. Uh, And then he told me not to worry too much about that because most people like me actually get hit by a bus before we go totally blind. So that was my entry into the disability community. And over time, as you know, I have lost my vision. I also have uh, hearing impact. Um, But that is something uh, that I came to uh, know and adapt to and live with, like so many of the 61 million Americans with disabilities and a billion more around the world. And trust me, not only is Jannie smart, you know, articulate, uh, gracious, she is, as I told you, a ball of fire. She's on it. She is on it. That's why I always say, Yeah, if you underestimate people with disabilities, especially in this situation, surprise, surprise, you have no idea what's going to happen 
because that has been one of the biggest problems, people lowering the bar of Americans and people with disabilities around the world, uh, for that matter. So um, a lot of people, Janie, just as you gave the figures here, have a disability. But only a small group of that percentage decides to become an advocate, as you have. Uh, why, why do you think that is? Like, you made that decision, I'm going to be an advocate, I'm going to be a disability rights leader. W- what made you do that? I think that, again, it was kind of a, a transition process for me. From the time I was a very young girl, I always wanted to be a lawyer. Maybe it was because I was the middle of three daughters and I had to argue my way uh, into any kind of situation that I, I really wanted. Maybe it was just because that was part of my DNA and I was destined to be a lawyer. I don't know. Um, but one of the reasons I really most wanted to be a lawyer was to affect change because it struck me that if you became a lawyer, you could work for and with other people and really have a positive impact in terms of making the world a, a, a better place for everyone. And I think that's the ultimate message uh, for the disability community and disability advocacy. We know because we live with the challenges of disability, that if we make life more inclusive, if we achieve that goal of equal opportunities that President Obama was speaking about, we actually make the, the world better for everyone. And we always use the example of, of the curb cut. And when that was uh, mandated, it was right at the beginning of the ADA. So it was way back uh, in the early 1990s. And there was tremendous pushback against that. People were worried about the landscape changing, the cost, the disruption, but now we know everybody uses the curb cut. So when I received my diagnosis, I still wanted to be everything I had wanted to be before, a lawyer, a mother, a wife, a citizen who gave back to the community. But it struck me, and I'm I'm so glad that it, it, it struck me that way and that I've stuck with it that the biggest impact I could possibly make was by advocating for this incredibly capable community of people with disabilities who, if they are just given the opportunity to participate in the nation and in our culture, they can make just as significant contributions as anyone else and, in fact, make life better and easier for us all. Well... You know what I have to say? Thank goodness you did that uh, because we're happy to have you as part of the fight. I always say disability rights are civil rights. Don't make the mistake of separating them. They are our civil rights just as other groups, all of us have civil rights. Um, Well, Janie, here's what a lot of people I don't think realize. The power of the disability vote. You know, Andy Imperato used to say to me, we are the silent majority, which we are. But there is a great power in this vote. So I wanted you to talk about that for a moment. Um, How large is it and what impact do you think we could have? I thank you for asking me that question because I think it's a particularly good time to think about this because we can have such tremendous impact. We are 61 million Americans challenged by disability, exponentially multiplied by our family, our friends, caregivers, supporters, and colleagues. Rutgers University estimates that for the 2020 national election, there will be 35 million Americans with disabilities who are of an age and otherwise qualified to vote. So when we think about that, that is actually the biggest affinity group that exists because people with disabilities cross all boundaries of age, gender, race, affiliation, and of the diverse types of disabilities, including sensory mobility and intellectual. So our voting block of 35 million votes for 2020 can have a very significant impact in ensuring that the values of inclusion and equal opportunity that we must have in order to make our contributions to society are realized. And just, did you hear all of that? 
You know, when people say to me, I don't like this, I don't like that, you have the power to change things. Vote. Vote. You know, I cannot tell you how upsetting it becomes to me when someone you want to win loses by a small margin of votes. And I, when I say small, I mean small. You know, so don't think your vote doesn't count. Every vote matters. But right now, people with disabilities, we got to get out there and vote. We've got to get out there. We've got to make a statement that we want to see change. And if you want to see change, you've got to vote. That is the greatest power that you have in this country as a citizen is the ability to vote. And you heard the numbers that uh, Janie just cited. Think what we could do and how the disability community, how they have played a big part in prior elections. Isn't that correct, Janie? It's it's really, I think, one of the, the proudest moments that we have as national disability community since the ADA was passed in 1990. And we really came to the forefront, I think, beginning in the national election of 2008, but there was a lot of activity even before that. But as a national group, we really began to organized in numbers and with force in 2008. Um, we, we raised money to support the national elections that year at a significant level for the first time. We banded together to make an impact with the state secretaries of state who are responsible to run the elections in each state. In 2012, uh, that movement grew uh, in much to uh, the, the credit of the Obama administration, which, as we discussed, was busy hiring, uh, as it turned out, more than 100,000 Americans with disabilities into federal government. And we really got it together in 2016 in support of the Hillary for America campaign, where we organized more than 350 uh, individuals with disabilities, stakeholders, experts, um, others who are interested in our community. We created more than 60 policy briefs. Hillary Clinton rolled out four disability-specific policies. And as you know, she held the first campaign speech dedicated to the issue of people with disabilities and employment during that campaign. We were at a hugely successful and accessible convention. And we even produced the first ever Braille campaign button for that election. So this is something that really demonstrates the power and potential of our community working together as a group. And I really look forward to seeing the great things that will happen in this upcoming election cycle and the November election for 2020. Yeah. What, what do you think about the issues of accessibility because in the last election, and I know Perry Jude, our anchor for uh, our break sh- uh, newscast, will be on in a few minutes. But and and she's with the uh, Disability Rights of Pennsylvania. She's the CEO there. Uh, so we have talked about this, you know, about voting. But what do you think? about accessibility and what problems do you think we'll run into as people with disabilities trying to vote? Unfortunately, I think accessibility in the election cycle is still very much a work in progress. Uh, Even though we've had the ADA for 30 years, this is an area where much more attention needs to be paid. And I personally did not vote privately and independently until 2008, even though I tried every single election cycle to do so. I am happy to report that I have been able to vote privately and independently since then. Um, But it is always something that, as as we know, requires... extra time, planning, and attention. Um, So we are very much hoping that the secretaries of state in each of the states will do what they did in the last election cycle and make sure that there are hotlines for um, people with disabilities who can be able to reach out on the day of the election if they haven't already voted um, in order to ensure that any last-minute problems are handled. We want to be sure that to the extent possible, for states make it possible for you to vote early, that this is something we get the word out about. Many people with disabilities elect to vote 
by mail. And as we know, this is a growing trend that is also important with respect to the current pandemic crisis. Um, and so that is something that is of growing popularity, but also really critically important to people with disabilities. And then we want to be sure that the disability community bands together to ensure that we help each other get out to the polls because, uh, you know, it's a strength that we find in ourselves, but we also draw from each other. And that is really one of the beautiful things about the disability community, don't you think? Oh, yes, I do. I just wish we were further ahead with that accessibility vote because, because it is so, really, it's terrible when you think about it, that there are Americans uh, who can't vote because lack of access or accessibility. I know, as you said, it's a work in progress. But folks, if you've got a problem, you got to speak up. Speak up. And... Uh, you know, talk about it now so that we can make whatever changes we need to make. And with that, hey, it's time for our news break advocacy matters with our anchor, Perry Jude Radisic, the CEO of Disability Rights of Pennsylvania, a group I'm so proud to be on the board of. And Perry, I'll bet you were tuned into what we were just talking about. <laughs> I did. I hurried up and called in Joyce and was uh, listening intently to the conversation, all of it, including uh, the part about uh, voting and accessibility. Yeah. Um, and just before you, we go through your, uh, your newscast for today, I just wanted to, for you, if you don't mind pointing out the difference this year this election, I'm sorry, in the, the primary, the number of mail-in votes versus, sure. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So in Pennsylvania, uh, in 2016, there were about 100,000 voters who used the absentee process in Pennsylvania. So about 100,000 voters voted by absentee ballot in Pennsylvania, and that was uh, either people with disabilities who could not get to the polls, uh, or those were people who needed to be out of their jurisdiction on the day, uh, on election day. And this year, now that the state had opened up voting, mail-in ballots to all voters, nearly two million people voted by mail on primary election day. So it's a very popular uh, option for voters, uh, especially during COVID-19, to vote by mail. Uh, We are working on uh, securing an accessible option uh, for uh, voters by mail, uh, but we have not uh, brought that lawsuit to a conclusion yet. Mm. Yeah, because I was just wondering, how do people know ahead of time if it isn't accessible, the voting poll, poll, or don't they know ahead of time? So when you go in to uh, verify your registration, verify where your polling place is located, the state and the counties provide uh, that universal symbol of disability access. It's a little icon on uh, on that form that shows you where you're supposed to go and vote. Uh, and so your polling place will indicate that, that it is to be uh, uh, accessible. Now, that doesn't always indicate that it is uh, universally accessible, so we still run into problems. But in, at least in Pennsylvania, there is an indicator uh, that your polling place is accessible. Oh, well, we got a ways to go, but we will get there with people like you fighting that fight, you and Janie. So, Perry, Whitney, yeah, what news do you have for us today? Well, Joyce, I wanted to bring an update on a topic we have discussed previously related to COVID-19, and that's medical rationing. I think we've all looked at numbers across the country and see that COVID-19 just didn't impact the northeast part of the country, but it's increasing in the Midwest, the south, the southwest, uh, 
And so the disability legal community continued our efforts to ensure that state policies prohibit discrimination based on disability, particularly when it comes to rationing care during COVID-19. States like Alabama, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut had already filed and resolved our civil rights complaints to ensure that state policies ban discrimination in medical rationing plants. So what does that mean? It means that if you had COVID-19 and you went to get a ventilator or you needed emergency care, a hospital wouldn't discriminate against you on the basis of disability. Now, the numbers really show that the, patem- uh, that the pandemic has hit so many other parts of the country. And in those states, ICU and hospital beds are near or at capacity. And so governors and health officials are doing what we did here in Pennsylvania and in New York. They're contemplating policies and decisions on who should be excluded from care, either because of the lack of beds, ventilators, or other resources. But here's some good news. On Friday, just this past Friday, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee agreed to update his state's crisis medical standards of care to ban discrimination against people with disabilities or by age. So now Tennessee has become the fourth state to resolve one of these medical rationing civil rights complaints. And so this complaint was filed by Disability Rights Tennessee, the ARC, the Center for Public Representation, the Bazelon Center, and more. And it was done with the help of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of Civil Rights. Now, what makes the Tennessee resolution important is because it goes further than Pennsylvania, it goes further than Alabama or Connecticut. This one, uh, this one says that it will not consider long-term survivability. So what does that mean? In Pennsylvania, the, the doctors have the right to look at five-year survivability. In Tennessee, they will not consider long-term survivability at all, which is great. We had advocated for that but couldn't get that in in our state, Joyce. But in Tennessee, they do not look at long-term survivability at all. So the medical facility can only consider imminent mortality when allocating care. And so there's so much more here, of course, at disabilityrightspa.org, you can find all of this information, uh, including uh, the information about the Tennessee standards of care. If you go to disabilityrightspa.org, it's up on our website now. We know that advocacy matters. So what should you do if you're in a state that's seeing a rising number of COVID-19 complaints and a lot of people going to the hospital? So if you're confronted with this situation of medical rationing, call your state protection and advocacy agency. You can find us at ndrn.org or file your complaint directly with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This virus is serious. You need proper diagnosis and access to treatment. So it's important that you act on your own behalf. So go to Disability Rights PA. You can find the Tennessee complaint and the uh, resolution, the Tennessee guidance. You can find the press release from the community about the resolution to the Tennessee complaint. You can find links to your own protection and advocacy agency in your state. And you can find a link to the Health and Human Services civil rights complaint process. And so really, it's important that you advocate for yourself if your state is seeing an increase in COVID-19 cases. And you know what, Perry? 
I thought about this, and actually I thought about you. The other night, I didn't get his name. I didn't get to hear the whole thing. But a doctor, it was on Rachel Maddow, and he was saying that this is still going on, you know, where there's a triage and who do we bring in and who don't we bring in and who gets treated and who doesn't get treated. And I thought about this right away. I thought this is where... If they're looking at that five-year survival rate, they see a person come in uh, with MS or yeah. muscular dystrophy, we'll say. All right? And the person comes in and they're saying, you know what? If we have to choose the room and the ventilator for one person, it won't be this person. And pretty soon you have people judging uh, people with disabilities, uh, you know, in, unfairly discriminatory I mean, that is a terrible thing to think about, but it is happening and it can happen. It's a shame that, you know, right now in these rural areas of some of these southern states, who knows what is happening? Um, you know, I, I don't know. That really worries me, Perry Jude. It does. Uh, it should worry all of us. We care for our neighbors. Uh, we, we care for the community that we serve all across the country. And it's important that uh, the community health centers share their information. It, more information is better than no information. It's important that people get tested. And it's so important that people have access to treatment. And you know, Joyce, groups like the Bazelon Center, I know you're on their board, the Center for Public Representation, our Protection and Advocacy Network network will always be there in every state making sure that people have access to treatment. So that's important. And uh, Tennessee did a great job of breaking some new ground in these civil rights complaints. We have the U.S. Uh, Department of Health and Human Services to thank for being there by our side uh, through this fight. And, uh, and we just have to keep trying. That's what we have to do. Well, thank goodness we have you fighting the fight for us. And Perry Jude Radisick is the CEO of Disability Rights Pennsylvania. What is the website, Perry Jude? Yes, you can find all of this information at disabilityrightspa.org. And after you look at that, you can make a little contribution. Okay, thank you so much, Perry. Thanks, Terry. I look forward to talking to you next week. Okay. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye-bye. Janie, that's a scary thought, isn't it? It's a, a, an amazing thing to, to really try to wrap your brain about. Um, and while I understand that there's so much that's subjective in terms of analyzing people who come in needing medical treatment, and we've been through this unbelievable and unprecedented time where there have been shortages of uh, medical treatment, medical responders, uh, protective equipment. It's, it's so important to discuss the advocacy that needs to be ongoing in order to ensure that people with disabilities are not discriminated against. And we can go back to our friend and colleague, Tony Coelho, who together with more than 400 different civil rights and disability organizations submitted a letter um, to OCR pointing out the dangers of rationed health care and insisting that every state understand fully that discrimination should not be tolerated on this basis, even though triage historically was really pretty much based on some of these assumptions about survivability and uh, treating the most seriously ill. So it's, it's a real conundrum, and it's one of many we're going to be facing as the COVID crisis goes forward. Yes, when the first lawsuit came out, it's because, um, and it was, I think, in Washington State, about people with intellectual disabilities uh, being one of those groups uh, not treated the same so you know and when that happened I told Ted Kennedy Jr. I said well we're if we do that we're having eugenics all over again so you know once again if you're listening to the show you know if something you know is awry something's wrong in your life you know get in touch with me uh, voiceamerica.com or benderconsult.com I'm always happy to hear from you uh, at any point in time 
So, you know, Janie, before we go on any further, there is something I wanted to ask you. Uh, you yourself, what stigma issues did you personally have to deal with being a woman with a disability? Being a woman with a disability has been at alternating times in my life um, this blessing and a curse, you know, a blessing in that it enabled me to really dedicate my time and energy to something I'm very passionate about, equality, inclusion, equal opportunities, and a curse in that when I have come across stigma and discrimination, I understand that very often it's it's done with the best of intentions. And the example that I usually give is, is this. When I, I go out into the world, when I went out into the world and hope to do so again when this crisis has passed, whether it's with my husband or family members or a colleague, very often I'll find myself in a situation where, you know, say we're waiting at the, the maitre d' desk uh, at a restaurant to be seated the person that is seating us will very often become uncomfortable because they don't really know how to deal with someone who is blind and is being guided by a guide dog. My guide dog is named Shiloh, and he's an amazing, amazing companion to me. And so instead of addressing me, they'll address my companion, my husband or my family member. Does she need a memo menu? Can she do stairs? Does she need a straw for her water? as though I'm simply not there. And while I understand that this is born from a lack of of complete understanding, and maybe this is the first time they've dealt with the situation, it renders me a non-person. And so usually when that happens, even though whoever's with me is quick to speak up to point out that I can speak for myself, I always make a point of answering the person directly by myself because blind just means blind. It means I can't see, but it doesn't mean that I can't think, hear, comprehend, respond, or be part of my situation. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons we try to impart as disability advocates. We're right here. Our choices and our opinions count, and we're very eager to share them with you if we're given the chance. And... Uh, have you ever felt, Janie, that people thought, uh, you did not realize how brilliant you are and judged you first because you were blind? Well, thank you for that compliment, Joyce. But unfortunately, yes, that happens very often. Um, I remember a situation when my children were young. We were walking along the streets of San Francisco, and I, I was still excited enough that I didn't have yet have my cane or my dog with me, but I was being, you know, led by my sighted guide. It was one of my children, and there was an elderly blind woman walking along the street in front of us, and there were some school-age kids that were literally taunting her. They were putting plastic bags in front of her cane so she would have her cane run into them and have to stop. They were placing other barriers in front of her. They were taunting her. And at one point, this elderly lady just stopped in her tracks, turned around and said, you know, I may be blind, but I am not stupid. And this is bullying. And that lesson is something that my children talk about to this day. They were very young at the time, but it had such an impact on all of us because you can't make an assumption about anybody, disabled or otherwise, about what they are able or not able to do or where their strengths and talents might lie. So I think it's a lesson to all of us that uh, we should be making the assumption the opposite way, that everyone is capable of being part of the community and making their contribution and having their voices heard, um, and that we should be helping each other to make sure that those voices are always a part of the dialogue of our communities. Why would pe- Why do people do things like that? Ah, that's so infuriating to me when I, I mean, it really is. I, I mean, there is one thing when, as you said, they're loving you too much and, you know, pity and making all these mistakes they don't realize, but that's just, that's just harassment. And, 
Oh, kids in high school with disabilities, they are so bullied, you know. And if if you do that or see that, well, if you do it, you're wrong. If you see it, stand up, say something, do something. Uh, Which reminds me that there are a lot of young people with disabilities that listen to this show, uh, Jannie. And if they are interested, like you, in, you know, getting involved in politics or... Uh, going to law school, but have dealt with the brunt of you can't do it, you know, uh, you're less than. What, what advice do you have for them? I so admire this emerging generation of people with disabilities. You know, this is the first full generation that has been raised within the protections of the ADA, which was passed in 1990, and so we're heading into the 30th anniversary celebration on July 26th. Um, And I think uh, to a certain extent, this generation has been greatly empowered by those protections. But as you just said, they also are like anybody with a disability, very often subject to misunderstandings, confusion, or bias, an assumption that we can't do, that we can't be part of it. So for the rising generation of people with disabilities, I really applaud the extent to which this generation is embracing their identity as part of this community. And we know that the ADA says that you, you can make a choice about whether you wish to disclose whether or not you have a disability. But what I've seen, and which I find so invigorating and empowering, is that this rising generation is identifying as people with disabilities and that they are seeking to make their career choices, to shape their aspirations, and to make their dreams a reality by incorporating their disability identities into whatever it is they choose to do. And, you know, let's face it, as a blind person, I knew I was never going to be a jet pilot. But (laughs) I also really always wanted to be a lawyer. And that was something that I could work with um, and still achieve my goals. So I applaud these rising disability advocates, whatever it is they choose to do. And whatever dream they, they, they choose to have, and working hard to make that dream a reality. We have the protections of the ADA to help them along, but everybody has to make their own choice. What they see themselves doing, how that can make an impact, not only for themselves, but for the broader community of Americans with disabilities and for the communities they live in. I always find it so enriching when I, I can have a conversation with someone who is, uh, whether or not in the disability community, made a choice that has empowered them and enabled them to succeed. And I think it's, it's really relevant to look at the kind of education that is available to demand the accommodations that you need in order to receive the education that will allow you then to progress and be an empowered member of the community finding and retaining a job, starting and growing your family, and just making the contributions that you know in your heart. It's, it's what you really can, should, and are willing to do. And of course, there'll be sacrifices along the way. There will be frustrations and challenges. That's not only true for the disability community. That's true for anyone who's trying to make their way in the world. But I applaud you. And I hope to support you as you grow into the uh, community that we will then pass the torch to as we retire and make way for these young up-and-coming advocates and uh, empowered Americans with disabilities. Well, you heard it. And I, too, love young people. I I love these emerging leaders. I do. Uh, But listen, you remember, you don't let anyone lower the bar, ever. Ever, you stick to what you believe and you go for it. You go for that dream, just the way Janie did. As well, Janie, you know, I look at you and I say, she's so confident, so outgoing, uh, so you know, putting herself out there generously with her time, trying to help with the disability vote. Uh, so someone had to impact you, whether 
in this life or history, whatever it would be. Um, but I wanted to ask you, who, who would you say was your role model? There's, there's a dead tie for my role model. So I'm going to mention the both. And I, I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. The two women who most inspire me in life are Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and yes, many of us choose her, and Madonna. And I think probably many of us choose her too, and they're for different reasons. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the iconic hero of the women's movement in the United States. And even though we are celebrating the right to vote for 100 years, um, the changes that needed to happen in order to enable and empower women to serve in positions of leadership was something that would not be where it is now, if not for the early recognition by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if not for her taking the step to become a woman attorney in an era where there were so few of us, and then going on to prove by her power, her intellect, and her stamina that um, there can be a place for women and women attorneys, even in the highest levels of our government with her service on the Supreme Court of the United States. Madonna is a little bit of a different story. Here is a woman who at a time when, again, the industry was mostly male-branded, took it by storm, created her own brand, went outside the box, created really an empire that then promoted and supported other female entertainers to come behind her. Who would have thought that there would be two women embracing and kissing on the main stage of the Grammys all those years ago? It would not have happened, but for someone like Madonna, who in much the same way as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, saw her place, took on the role, and then had the tenacity to drive that to levels of success that we've never seen before. So I am so grateful to both of those women for being our trailblazers. I know that there are women who will be assuming leadership roles in the future. We're hopefully going to have a female vice president in 2020, and this will be our moment. So thank you to both Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Madonna. May you reign, live long, and show us what you've got. Well, that is, they are, boy, are those two different people, huh? <laughs> different, <laughs> and yet both, and, and yet, and yet both powerful. I just, you know, I, I love Ruth. I do. I think she is so awesome. I actually met Madonna uh, several years ago, and you know, now look today though, there are so many women, uh, entertainers and actresses that are, you know, breaking uh, those glass ceilings. Although we don't have enough directors and we don't have enough women being nominated in these movies, uh, and you know, so. There's so many other areas where we just have to keep fighting the fight, including, including seeing movies where people with disabilities are depicted by people with disabilities. That is something we're going to work on. So what uh, message do you have for our listeners today before we end the show? Well, I'm so grateful to everyone that tuned in today, but I think the overwhelming message at the moment is really two different things. First of all, we must all take care of ourselves and our families, be safe, stay healthy, be sure that we are listening to the rules of our communities and doing everything we can to end this COVID crisis. But the second and equally important message is this. We have an opportunity in November to make sure that our voices are heard. Our voices can only be heard if we cast our votes. We must, every single one of us, above all else this fall, be sure that we cast our votes, however we choose to cast them, in a way that uh, we understand will make the, probably the biggest difference of our lives. So I want to thank you so much, Joyce, for including me today. I hope everyone stays safe and healthy. I hope everyone gets out to vote or mails their ballot in. And then we can look forward to an even brighter, more inclusive, and uh, a future that 
provides opportunities that are equal for us all. And I'll bet we're going to see you in that role in a position where you are able to carry on all of these uh, dreams that you have for women with disabilities. Uh, So, you know, Janie, thank you for everything you're doing. You know, keep fighting that fight. Uh, I think you're awesome, and we will continue following you as you go along. And, you know, just in case someone ever would want to reach out to you, how do they follow you? Is there a way? Well, I have a blog on Medium, so you can go to uh, jenny.larestein at medium.com and read my blog. You should absolutely join and follow us at the DNC Disability Council, um, where we are very actively engaged in uh, getting ready, registering, and getting out the vote for 2020. Um, And you can find me on Facebook at Jenny Larestein. There you go. You heard it now. Well, folks, guess what? Next month is ADA month. ADA month, and you will see that throughout that month, we are going to have leaders on, including, by the way, Tony Quello and Heifel Bloom and many more. But we're starting the month. We're starting the kickoff with Maria Town, the CEO of AAPD, and Kelly Buckland the CEO from Nickel, and we are just going to rock it as we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Everyone, Janie, thank you, and to all of our listeners, thank you, and just as Janie said, stay safe. Remember what I said, stay safe. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the signing of the ADA. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are the leader in live Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.